A House bill would require the EPA to regulate water levels of a group of chemicals called pre- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. The 2020 National Defense Authorization Bill also takes on PFAS. For some insight into what's going on, joining me in studio, the Environmental Working Group's Vice President for Government Affairs, Scott Faber. Scott, good to have you in. Good to be here, Tom. All of a sudden, these PFAS seem to have come to the attention of Congress from a couple of vectors. Tell us about what these chemicals are and why they're different from maybe some of the other carbon types of chemicals. Yeah, so PFAS are are unique in a couple of ways. One is because they are a carbon-fluorine bond chemical, they never break down in the environment. Sometimes they're referred to as forever chemicals. And because they never break down in the environment and because they're incredibly mobile, They're remarkably pervasive. Once they're released into the environment, they spread everywhere. And because they are uh, have this unique property, they build up in our blood and organs and have an extraordinarily long half-life in the body. And that's why scientists are so concerned. Uh, Not only do they build up in our blood and organs, they've also been strongly linked to cancer, kidney cancer and testicular cancer, as well as a variety of other serious health effects, including harm to the reproductive system, and harm to our immune systems in ways that make vaccines less effective. And how are they used in industry? They're used in myriad ways. They're used in all sorts of products. Um, But in particular, they've been used for decades in fluorinated firefighting foams, or AFFF. And that's why so much of the PFAS contamination in the environment is found near military bases where AFFF, or these fluorinated firefighting foams, were used for training purposes. Of course, uh, also used to put out fires. They are uh, uniquely good at helping to put out jet fuel fires. But most of the PFAS that's entered the environment as a result of of its use in firefighting foam has been been a result of training, not actually putting out fires. So they're not used to make water bottles and dry cleaning bags and that kind of thing. They're used in lots of consumer products. They're they're about 50 PFAS that have been approved for use in food packaging. So think about the lining of your popcorn bag. They're used in personal care products to help make uh, your uh, mascara waterproof. Um, But the primary way that PFAS is getting into the environment is in the use of these fluorinated foams. And by uh, industrial discharges from manufacturers, people who might make chemicals or rugs or carpets or uh, semiconductors, electroplaters, who discharge PFAS as part of the manufacturing process into the air and water. And they're not regulated now in some way? They're not regulated at all. It's uh, it's really unusual. So uh, there's no limit on the amount of PFAS that can be released into the air and water. There's no requirement to report those releases to the EPA. There's no requirement to take PFAS out of your drinking water, out of the tap water that you receive in your home. And most importantly, there's no requirement to clean up legacy PFAS pollution. And that's especially important for DOD, which has so far declined to clean up some of the most contaminated sites in the country. So what would the National Defense Authorization Act, presuming it passes one of these days, (laughs) require of DOD in respect to uh, PFAS? So this this is a historic moment in the in the history of PFAS because the the NDAA would address PFAS in three ways. First, it would reduce ongoing releases of PFAS into the environment by quickly ending the use of PFAS and firefighting foam and food packaging by the military. It would require EPA to within two years set a cleanup standard for PFAS in drinking water. So EPA would have to set a limit that water utilities would have to meet. And thirdly, it would 
designate PFAS as hazardous substances under CERCLA or Superfund law, and that would in turn require DOD and others to clean up the most contaminated sites in the country, most of which are so far, because we don't know the full extent of PFAS contamination, near uh, DOD installations. We're speaking with Scott Faber. He is vice president for government affairs at the Environmental Working Group. And just a quick question, how would they put out fires? There are still alternatives that can be used. Some countries, even some states are now using other alternatives that use other chemical formulations. So there's a lot of work underway to develop even more effective solutions, but there are alternatives available right now. Now, the House bill is in the Energy and Commerce Committee right now. Does it have bipartisan support in the committee? And is it likely to pass both the House and the Senate in some form, which are obviously in different hands? It's a great question. So the the NDAA, because it has the longest winning streak in congressional history, is the most likely vehicle by which Congress will address PFAS pollution. And we're all very optimistic that the president will get to sign an NDA before uh, before Christmas. Um, there are there are provisions that the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, pat, moved to the floor this week that are also in the NDAA, but there are also provisions that are not in the NDAA and might still proceed to the floor and ultimately be taken up to the Senate. Some of those are things like addressing air pollution um, associated with PFAS. The House bill would require EPA to set limits on discharges into water under the Clean Water Act, but would not address discharges into air under the Clean Air Act. So the the Pallone bill, the bill that Chairman Pallone has moved through the committee, that did have some bipartisan support. Congressman Upton from Michigan and Congressman McKinley from West Virginia both voted for that package, would also address air emissions from PFAS and uh, would, would require uh, Congress to provide more money to drinking water utilities who would now be charged with getting this stuff out of our drinking water. Now, given the makeup of the EPA these days and, again, in the Senate, is there industrial participation in the formulation of these bills? Because they would be the payers and the affected parties ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. And um, many companies have accepted responsibility for the the costs of legacy contamination, um, in particular uh, DuPont, which has been fined by EPA in the 90s, sorry, in the 2000s for failing to disclose some of the risks of PFAS, has now supported designating PFAS as hazardous substances to help kickstart the cleanup process. Um, but the, 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 the reason Congress does need to act is because EPA has failed to act. And this has been a bipartisan failure. EPA has been was first alerted to the risks of PFAS in 2001. The first PFAS action plan was by EPA was released in 2009. Another PFAS action plan was released earlier this year. But EPA has been slow to use the authorities they already have to reduce releases, monitor releases, tell us who's even releasing the stuff, much less get it out of our tap water and clean up legacy pollution. So it's really important that Congress... Congress takes some steps to act. Yeah, you mentioned three different administrations, 2001, 2009, and earlier this year. And the EPA has action plans that it, I guess it's powers that be created, and those action plans exist, but the EPA hasn't acted on them? Yeah, it may be better to call them inaction plans. And as you know, Tom, Congress gave EPA uh, a lot of authority in the 70s and 80s to know who's releasing chemicals, uh, to reduce the releases of those chemicals, and to ultimately require that they be taken out of our water, our food, and, and to clean up the most contaminated places under our Superfund law. 
And and unfortunately, under three administrations, EPA just failed to use them. They got a lot of tools. EPA has failed to use them. That, and that's why Congress, in a bipartisan way, has said, OK, EPA, it's time for you to, to help clean up this mess. Now, if these bills pass, of course, that would only require a next step, which is rulemaking. That's right. And is there any indication whether these rules would be of the cost threshold such that they would need extra handling because of you know their $100 million type of rule? Yeah, we. I mean, clearly um, taking steps to re- reduce ongoing releases of PFAS, especially if you're dis- if you're a manufacturer, a chemical company, electroplater, a tannery who's discharging PFAS in un- unlimited amounts into the air and water now, taking steps to reduce those releases is going to incur some new costs. There's there's no doubt about that. But we're all paying now for the costs of inaction. We're paying uh, in increased risk of cancer or harm to the reproductive system, or harm to the immune system. Some communities have not waited for EPA to act, and they've already required their drinking water utilities to adopt technology to get PFAS out of the drinking water. So you know, the real question is who pays? Should it be uh, the people who, help, who helped create this big contamination problem? Should it be the people who are continuing to release PFAS? Or should it be taxpayers and water utility rate payers? And And I think we all know the answer to that. Scott Faber is Vice President for Government Affairs at the Environmental Working Group. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash Podcast One to learn more and start your free trial.